as good as the Game of Thrones TV series is, if you have not read the books by George R. R. Martin yet, you absolutely should. And even if you read them before, there's a great new way to experience them. iBooks has an exclusive version of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books called the Enhanced Editions. One of the things that I love, especially now that everyone is secretly a Targaryen, is that when you click on someone's name as you're reading the text, a footnote pops up. You can see the family tree, see who they're related to and how. These books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, probably available where you live. You'll be a Game of Thrones expert in no time. Check out the Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions on iBooks. Welcome to a special episode of the Game of Thrones weekly podcast where we're going to talk about season seven as a whole, what we thought worked, what we thought maybe didn't work so well. We're going to update our ranking of all the Game of Thrones seasons. Then we're going to totally speculate about season eight, the final season, what we think is going to happen. I'm EW editor at large, James Hibbard. I'm here with senior writer Darren Franich. Darren, let's start with you. What was your sort of overall takeaway from watching season seven? This was a very strange season of television. I think like a lot of people, I've found the feeling of whiplash has been kind of interesting. And we talked going into this season, James, you had a lot of great reporting circulating around the idea that this season was just going to move at a much faster pace, certainly than previous seasons and, and arguably faster than the show has ever moved. If we consider sort of the larger overarching plot elements that were just in play. I mean, this was a season that that right from the beginning, in the very first scene, was sort of killing off whole families and whole houses of Westeros. The phrase, Highgarden, Dorne, just all of these points on the map that just felt sort of wiped clean, really by like the middle of the season, actually, now that I think about it. And a lot of that was fun. I think that just as far as the visual storytelling goes, there were a lot of big, huge moments this season that captivated me the same way that they captivated everyone. I was struck and kind of going back over previous seasons to rank them that the pace at which we used to consume the show, the way that you kind of expected, like, okay, the penultimate episode will be the sort of transformative moment and the Neil Marshall era of these big battle episodes. This season just had so totally scrambled that. I mean, just unexpectedly there would be a huge sea battle and even more unexpectedly there would be a huge dragon battle. Liked all that stuff. At the same time, we expressed some more frustrations with the last couple of episodes. Some of the larger moves that were made I thought were kind of confusing. I think that it's a testament to the strangeness of this season that I find myself rooting most of all for Cersei now. I think that's a testament to how totally my loyalties have been sort of re-scrambled. And I think that... I'm left with a lot of questions about what does the show look like next season? Are we just in this perpetual phase of big battles and big dragons and stuff like that? Do I like that? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So again, it was a strange season, some good aspects, some bad aspects. What was your kind of takeaway from it though, James? The, just the, the sheer speed of it and the sheer amount of incidents that happened still feels kind of dizzy to me as I look back on season seven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a jam-packed season. I, I think in some ways, despite the fact that it, it was only quote unquote seven episodes that more happened 
than in this season than any other season that we've seen. And as of noted before, you know, with this caveat, you know, since we don't get to see the episodes in advance, and since uh, when they it airs on Sunday nights, I'm frantically taking notes for my recap. I'm tweeting. I'm preparing all these interviews into our <laughs> system to go live. It, it's tough for me to judge the current season because I'm in the middle of working it and I'm also pretty close to the show doing lots of reporting on it. So I usually tend to not know how I feel about a season until, until I go back and rewatch it months later, but putting that aside, you know, I'm going to launch into a bit of a, a defense of season seven because I can't help but All right. feel defense, defense, <laughs> defense, defense that a lot of the complainers this season, you know, present company excluded, kind of come <laughs> off like a bit like spoiled brats. I think there's nothing close to this show out there right now. I mean, it makes the walking dead look like something on the CW and the show has, regardless of how you rank the seasons, but just in terms of production wise, has gotten more spectacular every year. The acting, I think particularly among the younger actors uh, has gotten better as they've gotten older. And so there's a part of me that feels a bit like Maximus and Gladiator, just going, are you not entertained? And another thing I've, I've noticed about the show is that it's so big and it's so popular and people have such high expectations at this point that no matter what the show does, it tends to get complaints. Like if there's an episode with lots of action, people will complain on Twitter, oh, there was too much action, you know, it was all action, it lost the drama. You know, then if you have an episode like the season seven finale, you know, which was an 80 minute episode that was mostly people having conversations, uh, people complain, oh, it was boring. Nothing happened. It was too slow. Whereas, you, you know, and then, you know, it's like even on a macro level for year, years, there are these complaints about, oh, things are moving too slowly. Things aren't happening quick enough. Now they have this season and people are going, it's moving too quickly. You know, things are moving too fast. <laughs> <laughs> or like in season five, you know, season five, people are like, oh my God, this show is too dark. It's too horrible. It's too nihilistic. You know, they're going too far. And now it's like this season, I've seen all these think pieces about Game of Thrones. You, you know, is it too fan service? Is it, is it giving us too much what we want? You know, it's, and so I, I imagine, I mean, can see why the showrunners stay off the internet because if, if, if I were writing the show, I would be going nuts with these criticisms because it's, it seems like no matter what they do, they're criticized for the opposite. <laughs> opposite, even if it's, they were criticized for the opposite of that just two episodes before. And of course, you know, I don't mean to discount at the same time people's criticisms, because I think everybody's objective experience is a valid experience. You know, mine is no more valuable than anyone else's. So I'm not saying anyone's opinion is wrong. Well, maybe I am, because I do think they're wrong. But, but the show <laughs> is at this point where the expect expectations are so stratospheric that it has to make episodes that are literally like the best hours of television anybody has seen in order to just feel on par with itself. And that is perhaps unfair. I think everything you said, James, is totally fair uh, and subtweets received all the way around. I do think that one thing that I try to remember when I try to express my confusing response to this season is I do think sometimes that the best comparison for an episode of Game of Thrones this season was not to earlier episodes of Game of Thrones. It was more like, let's compare this to the new blockbuster movies released this weekend. Like, was the 80-minute finale we just saw on par with some of the 
the heights that the show has achieved before. I would say maybe not, but I don't know. Was it better than like a lot of the two and a half hour blockbuster sequels we got this summer? I would say like, yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of that. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, when I watch a, a Marvel movie, and I watch a scene like the Spoils of War dragon attack or the Beyond the Wall, <laughs> another dragon attack. I feel that Game of Thrones looks more realistic and makes you feel like you're really there than, than your average summer movie action scene. It just has that more credible, more tactile <laughs> Like you are there feeling to it. it. You know, it feels less CGI, even though you have a freaking dragon in, in, in the middle of it. Totally. I mean, like, you will find few people in this world more willing to kind of partially defend the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. By no means am I saying it's good. I'm just saying it was, like, a little <laughs> more fun than I was expecting. But, like, the the Greyjoy sea-ocean battle, which, like, yes, like, tactically, I'm not sure that it all made sense. That was a lot more visceral and fun and bloody than, like, any of the probably much more wildly expensive ocean battles in Pirates 5. So I do appreciate that. I actually love, James, you you brought up the comparison to Walking Dead, a show that a lot of people I've kind of been on the spin cycle with throughout the years. And I would say this season more than any of Thrones reminded me a little bit of some of the eons that the Walking Dead cast spent inside of the prison, where it was kind of like, okay, we know where this is all going. We know there's this showdown looming. Every kind of little minor battle along the way ultimately feels like kind of a stall tactic. Like, in this metaphor, I do think Cersei kind of became the governor where it's like, okay, we know there's going to be some sort of reckoning here and everything until then starts to feel like a stall. Now, all that being said, when Walking Dead ultimately got to the end of its prison sequence, that sort of long buildup produced what I think was ultimately some of the best episodes that the show ever achieved in the aftermath. And I think we're kind of there in that aftermath now at the end of this season. So again, this is part of my confusing reaction to it. I'm aware that a lot happened as far as wiping the game board, yeah. but maybe not that much happened with the main characters outside of John and Danny. And yeah, then there's the John and Danny stuff, which I'm still kind of rubbing my head over because it's weird and strange and maybe not that convincing compared to some other romantic relationships we've had, but way more dark compared to some of the romantic relationships we've had, given where it might be heading. So again, I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm the voice of like, how come they didn't do more of the fan stuff that I like? Because as everyone knows, I'm a great joy Quentin Martell fanboy. So I would actually be very disappointed if the show started to please only me and nobody else. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there are certain points I've been brought up along the way that I, I get. You know, I agree that getting the Night King a dragon required some awkward story contortion. And uh, and that, you know, I understand why people were frustrated with uh, Littlefinger turning the sisters against each other. Though ultimately, you know, we're probably talking about maybe 20 minutes of scenes about that. Uh, you know, ultimately, I won't be able to know how I feel about it till I go back and, and, and rewatch it in, in a few months. But I do think that it's sort of telling that the only way you can compare Game of Thrones episodes is to compare them to other Game of Thrones episodes because it's not like there's any other show out there yeah. that you can really compare it to in the first place. So <laughs> if the best insult that you can come up with for Game of Thrones is, well, it's not as good as that other episode of Game of Thrones, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sort of like, is that really that much of a criticism of a show after all? But you mentioned the other other seasons uh, you posted on EW.com your definitive ranking of the season. So, so why don't you sort of run us through that in terms of which you think, uh, you know, how you think each one stacks up. 
it's actually kind of really fun going back over the throne seasons and, and trying to rank them. Uh, you know, I, I do feel like each one has its own really unique feel. And, you know, it's just fun to kind of like recall how some of the great moments were sort of built up to. As you said, James, there is sometimes a feeling late in a show's life, a fan has seen so much of it and has this sort of expectation like, oh, like there were so many great moments before and there's less now, but Thrones has always been so good about the slow burn. Um, that's kind of why I still really think season four is the show's best season. I feel like that was the one that was this great transition where you had a lot of truly climactic moments that came almost early and very unexpectedly. I still think that the Purple Wedding is maybe the show's high point for just getting all the characters together in one place and then just hitting you with a shock that you maybe didn't see coming. And even if you'd read the books, the execution of it was so remarkable. From there, I think that I do lean really hard into some of the show's early years. Season one is in some respects an awkward season, and it's definitely more of a prologue than necessarily a part of the story to come. But I do just find that like season three, season one, these are the moments that to me just really stand out. And then I gather that we might disagree a little bit on sort of my middle ranking, because then I'd put season six in the number four slot, season seven coming in at number five, and then season two and uh, season five down at the bottom. You were kind of saying that you feel like season six might rank a little bit higher for you. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. To me, season six uh, feels like it should be higher than mid-rank. For one thing, you know, it includes with two episodes, I think most people feel are probably the two finest hours the show has ever made. That was a season that, that broke all the uh, records for, for Emmys. So yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like season six, they, they're really just operating at, at a huge top of the game level there. And I also feel like you, you had season one as, as your second most favorite. Season one is uh, number three. Okay. Uh, season three is my second most yeah. favorite. Season three, I just think, like, I mean, in a way, season three gets, I think, a lot of catharsis from the fact that it's almost kind of constructed, and I think this comes from George R. R. Martin, it's almost secretly constructed as the end of a show and the beginning of a very different show. And I just think that the Red Wedding is a big moment, but everything that kind of leads into it is just so ultimately tragic and interesting, and that's kind of the beginning of Arya's travels with, with the Hound. You kind of feel like season six would rank higher up into that range, though. Yeah, I also I want to go back and rewatch season one because I started to rewatch re it for for preparation for for this season. I was really struck by how much of the show was there from the very beginning. Yeah, and I remember thinking that when I saw it the first time that season one moved a bit slowly at first, but I didn't feel that nearly as much going back and rewatching. But originally, I remember feeling like and telling a lot of people who said, oh, you know, it starts slow. I'm not sure I like it. I, I remember always telling people, wait till episode six. Once you hit six, you will never stop watching. And uh, so I don't know if I would necessarily rank season one that high. I'm not as down on season five as others tend to be. I might rank that above season two, but I kind of have to rewatch to be sure. Interesting. I guess it comes down to, I mean, with season two, again, I'm actually wondering if I would make it higher upon rewatch. I do think season two is one of those like weird seasons where like it's so totally a chessboard season. It is just so completely the buildup to Blackwater. It's, it's interesting to conceive of like, is that more entertaining on the broad scope than something like season five, which does have good moments, but is definitely 
like the darkest by far. I guess that's the thing. Season five is just so unpleasant that maybe there is actually some value to it. Like it's just the death metal season of Game of Thrones and it seems unlikely we'll ever quite <laughs> circle back around to that. But we'll see. Who knows? Maybe maybe season eight, maybe this is this has been like this sort of nice honeymoon phase where it's just like, okay, the siblings aren't getting along, but fundamentally things are trending upwards. Maybe they'll trend way back downwards again next season. Right, right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, speaking of those last seasons, someone on uh, Twitter asked us, hey, why don't you go back and do podcasts for the first five seasons since we didn't start this podcast until season six. And, and that's something that we're, we're talking about. We're, we're looking into it. Who knows? Uh, th- that could happen. And of course, you also just mentioned season eight, which is great because we have to transition into season eight uh, or season eight speculation. For the record, even though I'm on set and for those playing the Game of Thrones weekly podcast drinking game at home, yes, you can take a drink because I mentioned that I go to the set. There is, <laughs> I know nothing about season eight. So all this speculation is not reported speculation. It's just me looking at the show and trying to make predictions like everyone else. But there are some things actually that we do know about season eight that have been out there. Uh, we know for one uh, that George R. R. Martin has always said the ending of Game of Thrones would be, quote, bittersweet. That's always the word he's used. Um, I know that once his his wife told him when he first started writing the books that the one character he cannot kill is Arya. And so it'd be tough to imagine the show doing that either. And just in general, from what I've gathered on set, and this is no surprise to anyone, the final season will almost certainly contain a battle that will probably be bigger than anything we've seen before. So those are the three things. But, you know, aside from that, there's a bunch of other things. And and I, I made a little list here of, of my predictions. But uh, why don't you sort of kick it off in terms of what you think uh, is going to happen? Well, to kick it off, I want to refer to uh, somebody had tweeted at us, uh, Declan Cashin at tweet underscore deck had asked us a question. What does the Night King actually want? What's the point of their whole thing? And I love this question because it really provokes in me just the urge towards predicting not just what are the events of season eight, but what's the ultimate meaning of it? I think the show has established and given you the architecture to imagine that the Night King is just the sort of elemental force that the other characters believe him to be. It's subtext, and it might even be just actual text now that everyone sort of absorbs the White Walkers as this metaphor for climate change, for this sort of all-encompassing thing that you can't reason with. And I'm okay with that. It's obviously less interesting than the provocative nature of a lot of the other villainous characters on this show, where you think they're all bad, but there are these sort of interesting facets to their character. And Jamie is not the eugenicist dreamboat fascist that you thought he was. And Cersei, perhaps, is not even the totally brutal and heartless person that you thought she was. And so if there is that underlayer to the Night King, if there's something more he wants... I'm always really intrigued by these theories about who he really is. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that we could go into if you want to, James. The hot take Bob Benson-y type theory that the Night King is actually Bran is something that I find hilarious and extremely unconvincing. Yes, extremely. But you listen, God love anyone who comes up with it. I, I, I'm here for any loony time travel theory. I have always been quite struck by this notion that I'm not sure how canon this is, but this idea that the Night King is actually a Stark, that that is sort of his ancestry, it makes the sort of ice and fire thing all the more potent. So my my prediction is, 
I don't think the Night King is just sweeping down south to kill everything. I think there's a purpose. I kind of think that he's aimed towards Winterfell. I don't really know why. I don't know if it's just some sort of like animal instinct. You know, I was a Stark millennia ago and all I remember now is this sort of urge to go home. But I do think that that's maybe his purpose more so than just the general must consume all of Westeros evilness. With that in mind, I'm not sure we're ever going to get the like Night King flashback. He's actually doing it for a reason episode that would really provoke a lot of rewatching and reconsideration. But I do kind of wonder if on a show that has been so much about these children of Winterfell leaving and setting off on miserable adventures and ultimately trying to come home, I do wonder if there will be some resonance with the Night King, some, some sort of unexpected sense that he too is a long lost Stark who wants to go home. I'm not saying it's going to end happily. I'm not saying there will be like hugs, quite the opposite, but I have the suspicion that on a show and a narrative that's always so good about kind of challenging our expectations, I'm struck by the feeling that there's something more to the Night King. But I, I don't know. What do you think, James? Am I kind of barking up the wrong elemental force of evil here, seeking some sensitivity or some sense of a dimensionality? I kind of <laughs> lean toward your your original take about it just being this sort of elemental destructive force. But I like your, your idea that, that there could be something more there. I definitely don't agree with the brand theory. They're both existing at the same time. <laughs> We've seen them interact. Uh, we saw the guy who was turned into the Night King. And he looks nothing like Bran. And why would Bran be an evil o- winter overlord anyway? So yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the whole that whole thing doesn't quite work for me. I do think, and I think everybody thinks this, that the Night King's going to be defeated, right? And you know, going back to George R. R. Martin's statement, you can't really have a bittersweet ending if the Night King wins. I mean, that would just be bitter. So, <laughs> and, and I do think that creates a bit of a problem for the story because there's not that much suspense in whether the Night King wins or not. But I do think that they'll find suspense in the question of who does the Night King take with him? I feel like and this is one of my predictions that the Night King has to kill a major character, um, and, you know, you know, beside a, a dragon. So the question is, is, is who will that be? I came into this season as the person who was thinking that Sansa was not long for this world. Uh, I am happy that she has survived, and I now kind of feel as if she's probably safer than a lot of the other main characters. I just, I feel this strong kind of very magisterial sense that the show has come around to this idea that of all these young people who've suffered so much trauma and learned some truly brutal lessons about the world, she's the one who's kind of come out just having learned the harshest but also most interesting lessons about how to govern, having learned lessons from people who are themselves awful. Like, I I do think that it's really there in the performance, this sense that here's someone who has studied the worst dictators in the land from Cersei to Littlefinger to time spent with the awful Boltons and has somehow come through all of that still Ned Stark's daughter. And so I, I feel as if she's kind of safe, which brings up the question of really, who does die in this sort of final battle. This was a curiously deathless season for characters we really, really like. I'm not alone in thinking that like the march beyond the wall, when Thoros died, it was kind of like, oh, okay, like, well, bye. (laughs) We liked you, Top Knot. Um, But I do think that the show has done so much to set up John and Danny as a uniquely kind 
uh, romantic pairing. This is not necessarily a romance where there are obvious problems in place right from the beginning. And so you're just struck by the awareness that, well, something's got to give there. John's already died, uh, which one could argue makes him safer or makes it more likely that he will perish. There's been so much talk about Danny's successors, Danny's children, what that could mean. If the show were to do some major time moves, could she possibly have a child and not stick around to raise that child? I don't really know. I kind of have a sense that it'd be weird if John died again, but it'd also be weird if they end up together. So I almost kind of wonder, James, if we're building towards is more the sense of like, maybe they'll both survive, but they won't be together for whatever reason. Is the magic that brought John back something that lasts forever, something that can actually persist? So I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think either of them are going to die. I do wonder if a lot of other people are going to (laughs) die. I disagree because I I think if I had to predict a death of a major heroic good character, it would probably be Daenerys. And the, and the reason is, is because, you know, mm-hmm. this show in this world has always been one where, you know, the heroic impervious person is, is, is the one that ends up perishing and no one's been more impervious so far than Daenerys. And it seems unlikely that both, that A, they'd kill John again, and that B, they would live together happily ever after. Everyone has been thinking that that Daenerys is going to end up on the Iron Throne because she's the most obvious candidate. Well, that's the problem, is that she's the most obvious candidate to end up on, on the Iron Throne. There's also the whole question with them in terms of uh, the incest thing. How are they going to react to that? And my prediction on that is is Daenerys will be okay with it because it's been such a big part of her family history. Might not be thrilled about it, but will ultimately be okay with it. Jon will have problems with it, but Daenerys being pregnant, which I do think will happen, will bring him around to that. That's sort of the way I could imagine that happening. If you think about this, there's three main romantic couples in the show. Danny and Jon, Cersei and Jaime, and Missandei and Grey Worm. And I'm not counting Bran Tormund because that's so not a consensual relationship. So, so you, so you, you would think that a, not all will live happily ever after, but also think B, not all would have, you know, have a partner or two killed, you know, splitting them them up. So you, you sort of look at those three pairings and you think, okay, Cersei and Jamie doomed, uh, Miss Handy and Grey Worm, maybe, maybe that's the way they, they end up having one romantic couple survive. And uh, uh-huh. Danny and John, I, you know, I don't, I'd be really surprised if, if those two characters both survived and they lived happily ever after. You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game of Thrones Weekly. Just a quick word about our sponsor, iBooks, and their Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. Instead of me going on about them, I found a quote online from George R. R. Martin himself talking about them. So here's what the man himself has to say. Quote, We're now entering a new period in the history of publishing. The digital book gives readers the ability to experience all this rich secondary material that has not been possible before. These enhanced editions available only on iBooks include sigils, family trees, and glossaries. Anything that confuses you, anything you want to know more about, it's right there at your fingertips. It's an amazing next step in the world of books. End quote. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Now let's get back to our final season of Game of Thrones speculation. 
We had an email from a listener named Donna Sloan who said something that I, th- I thought was really interesting. I-, I had not really conceived of it because a lot of stuff with, with, with premonitions I kind of lose track of. Um, but what she says kind of goes along with what you're saying, James. Uh, quote, what if the prince that was promised is John and Danny's son? She was promised her son would ride the winds and conquer the world. Everyone assumed this was her son that died. This would give reason to John's purpose for being brought back to life. Why Melisander keeps getting mixed visions and the possibility of Danny being pregnant. I love the idea that there might be a reason why Melisander has been getting uh, mixed visions and and not just that like she keeps on applying the same prophecy to like whoever's in front of her at any given moment. I'm very intrigued by this idea that the person who sits on the Iron Throne, which has been such a big part of the sort of predictive fandom of the show, the idea that that person isn't born yet is really interesting. Yeah. I, like everybody, I think, have struggled a little bit with this idea of Cersei suddenly being pregnant, but I find that if Danny is also pregnant, then you're very aware that, like, wow, we, we've really seen this handoff between generations over the course of this show, you know, not just from the Ned Stark, Robert Baratheon era to their children, but now also from this era to the next era. And I'm very intrigued by that. I love your idea of should Danny perish, doesn't she then become this interesting, almost Moses-like figure, you know, someone who is so dedicated to carrying her followers to a better place, but ultimately not being able to enter that, that place. So I'm very intrigued by all of that. I guess that it makes wonder like who does that kid get raised by is it this sort of you know three men and a baby situation like john Tyrion and tormund sort of raising the <laughs> child to be a uh, better ruler um so i i like all that but what else are, are you kind of predicting for for the next season james yeah. what do you want to see what do you what do you think we'll see i do think that 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 prince who was promised predictions is, is prior right i recently did a post running down all the fan theories on the prophecy and uh john and danny both have like nearly equal amount of of considerable evidence for them and so and and i mentioned that as a possibility that that it could be their kid so i think that that does sound like really smartly reasoned i guess i i would predict and this seems kind of obvious but i think uh theon is probably destined to die saving yara you think so yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm surprised you, you sound surprised because it just because it seems like they're setting up Theon to do a heroic sacrifice, uh, saving her, and you know he seems also a bit doomed to always, you know, be wandering around with a certain amount of this weight of his past behind him. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if if that ended up being the case. Why do you disagree? Oh, yeah. Well, I would have thought that Theon would have been dead at almost any point over the run of the show. I mean, truthfully, even having read the books, everyone drink at home. Darren's mentioning how, how he's read the books, <laughs> which, which, by the way, a lot of people have done. I don't know why when I say it, it comes off like I'm such a like pedantic nerd bot. Um, <laughs> but having read the books and knowing what was going to happen to Theon, I truly thought the show might just kill him off at the end of season two. I mean, like that was a time when the show was still just kind of beginning to make radical changes to the narrative. But like, I thought that was as good of a bet as what I also thought was going to happen, which was just like kind of sending him to where Claire from Lost went for a couple of years and just ignoring him until we came back to him in his reek stage. That didn't happen either. I mean, 
I've been very intrigued and occasionally confused by the amount of narrative real estate the show continues to give to Theon. It has felt as if, especially for the last couple of years, he's kind of just been this kind of like suffering revenant figure. And, you know, full credit to Alfie Allen. He just always plays Theon in the last few seasons. Like he's Willem Dafoe carrying the cross and Last Temptation of Christ. Like there's just such a sense of loss and trauma to him. And so I was really kind of pleasantly surprised by the notion produced from the season seven finale that Theon can still either change or perhaps even reclaim something that was lost. And so I actually kind of wonder if, as a lot of characters who've had a good few seasons are perhaps trending towards a not so great ending, I kind of wonder if season eight, in the, you know, what I assume will be very small, rounded out by episode three amount of time that it spends on Greyjoys, I kind of wonder if we're heading towards something really transformative for him. Not knowing what Westeros looks like after the Great War, I'm not sure, do the Iron Islands, are they once again allied with somebody? Are they off doing their own thing? I would not be surprised if Theon winds up either in charge of the Iron Islands, should he tragically lose his sister, or in some sort of authoritative capacity. And and this goes back to, I've always kind of thought that Thrones was in some respects building up to the kind of ending that we got from Friday Night Lights or The Wire, these shows that don't so much end as give you the sense that there are certain characters who... Things are staying the same, but with a new group of people. And I've always thought that Theon just... Yes, he's lost so much, but we've seen eunuchs go on to do bigger and better things. And should the spider die, is there a role for like eunuch in chief in Westeros? And I kind of think there is. So I don't know. I kind of think Theon might be safe, actually, which I know sounds like the totally crazy last ditch hopes of a, of a Greyjoy fan bot. No, I mean, it, <laughs> it doesn't because... You know, as I said, Theon dying to save Yara is the most obvious take. And we know the show loves to not do the obvious takes. Mm-hmm. Another thing that it seems to be building up toward, especially after that finale, is the Clegane Bowl. That, that the Mountain and the Hound will definitely have their face off. I think that will happen. I don't know who will win. I wouldn't think that the mountain would win, but it could be one of those things where they end up both perishing in that moment. But it seems like after that conversation at the dragon pit, that's something we're going to get. Yeah. Don't you just want a 20 minute fight scene like Roddy Piper and Keith David and they live like just this sort of like knockdown, drag out, bash through multiple walls kind of a thing. Like I'm very taken with that. I'd also be intrigued to know, James. By the way, don't think anybody wins that. I mean, if anything, they're going to be, you know, still fighting when when the show ends. But uh, w- what do you think about where Cersei is going? I am so intrigued by the moves that she made, maybe just because she's the only person yeah. left who's still making these sort of interesting Tywin Lannister-style strategic moves. Is that the kind of bittersweet thing that we're aimed towards here? It seems very hard for me to imagine that there's a happy ending for her, and indeed for any of the Lannisters at this point. <laughs> yeah, she seems doomed. Just, you know, doomed. If the Night King doesn't get her, and that would be an interesting person for, you know, because I said the Night King has to kill a major character, that'd be interesting if the Night King ends up killing Cersei. Well, then what about Jamie Lannister? I mean, we it still feels like that has to happen, this sort of climactic face-off between them. I don't see how logistically that's going to work in the short term with Jamie riding north, but they have to see each other again. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of theories about this idea that is it this sort of an interesting bookend to Jamie's life if he ultimately has to kill his sister, has to kill another ruler of Westeros, someone else sitting on the Iron Throne, yep. has to kill the person who finally performed the Mad King's great plan to consume the town in wildfire. I think that's all interesting. One thing that I would just add to that, and some of this gets into my intrigue in some of the almost kind of throwaway plot aspects of this season. After the season six finale, I think we all kind of thought, oh, wow, like Cersei's in charge and she is straight up totalitarian despot over Westeros now. Everyone's wearing black. King's Landing is in ruins. There was a brief throwaway mention, her kind of speaking to the guy from the Iron Bank, that made you think like, oh, maybe to the average person in King's Landing, to all the hoopleheads who are still left after the wildfire blew up, is she actually this interestingly heroic figure? Is she this person who is sort of bringing order back to King's Landing in the wake of just lots of death and destruction? And I'm very struck by the fact that a lot of people have kind of talked about that lingering shot of Maester Kyburn looking at, at the White's hand and what does that mean? And lots of lingering shots in the season finale that I'm willing to chalk up to the fact that when you have an 80-minute running time, you can have lingering shots. But I am struck by the idea of Kyburn seems like he's good at coming up with ways to kill monsters. And... There's a lot of monsters that need to be killed pretty soon. And if they can make a ballista that also has a giant arrow made of dragon glass, I don't know. Does Cersei save Westeros from the Night King? I don't know. I just, I wonder if that is sort of like one potentially very bittersweet ending to all of this that Cersei, who really, I think it's fair to say, even if she sits on the Iron Throne for the rest of her life, I'm not sure her life is happy. Like, I'm not sure that being separated from no, of course family not. and the ones she's loved, but I just, I, I don't know. I'm so taken by that. I think you're right. The doom is waiting for her, but I, I guess I wonder what kind of doom is waiting for her and is it worth for her to kind of live out her life left alone up in the red keep i don't know we'll see we'll see you know one thing i i don't know that i was thinking about i don't know any of it but you know i don't know i don't even have like a real prediction except for one crazy wild one uh is is where do sansa and Arya go from here in in this great war do they just become soldiers in in the great war helping john and danny execute their battle plans what's it like when Arya meets daenerys there's a scene I, I want to see. And yeah. there's been a lot of speculation, too, this season about what Gendry's purpose was coming back into the show and all these speculations about how, you know, he's obviously King Robert Baratheon's bastard and what sort of political purpose that might serve. And this is the wild speculation. The really wild speculation is what if his purpose is not political but romantic? Because, you know, you know, Jon Snow goes back to Winterfell and meets back up with Sansa and Arya, and Arya, of course, and Gendry were friends. What if there's like romantic chemistry between Gendry and, and Sansa or, or something like that now that they're grown up? I mean, could that happen as, as a way of those two sisters have had this really hard, terrible road? You know, maybe one of the romantic couples that end up uh, on the show, and I'm kind of weirdly obsessed in this conversation about how things will end romantically in this yeah. series. You, you know, will there be be that surfate? Maybe there'll be some new relationship that we see hints of in the final season. 
I mean, you know, this show is certainly not afraid of feeding the shipper instinct in its fans. Would love to know what kind of think pieces arise if Arya's kind of last big plot line is romantic. That feels like the kind of thing that handled the wrong way could go pretty wrong. At the same time, what strikes me, James, is... After the Great War, if we assume the Great War is not the end, which might be like the wrong assumption, like that could absolutely be the 95 minute finale is just, you know, the Deathly Hallows part two shot where just every single main character in the single take is fighting the whites. Might happen, not sure. I am struck by the fact that someone, maybe Varys, maybe Tyrion, is going to be thinking, okay, Westeros is safe. We have to like rebuild it now. We need the great houses to sort of be repopulated. Does Gendry then become the head of House Baratheon? Are there alliances that need to be formed and marriages that need to happen for the good of the crown, for the good of order? That would be frustrating as a viewer, but I, I do sort of wonder, is this what makes it bittersweet that Arya sort of has to become a lady for the greater sense of order. As I'm saying this, I'm not liking it, but I'm wondering if it's supposed to sort of be frustrating like that. So I, I don't know. I'm definitely intrigued by Gendry's return and not just because I'm a Thor fanboy who loves Warhammers. I do wonder what we're sort of building towards there. And I, I think you're right to sort of focus on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could see Gendry and Sansa actually more than uh, uh, Gendry and, and, and Arya because, uh, you know, Arya hasn't seemed oh. like she has any interest in whatsoever in any kind of relationship, but uh, who knows? There's also been a lot of questions about what's going to happen with the dragons. And so we should hit that before we end. It seems, I mean, it seems likely that we'll probably, especially with an ice zombie dragon in the mix, that we'll probably lose at least one other dragon. I do think that we're not going to lose a dragon before Jon Snow gets on a dragon. I think that there was a reason in Beyond the Wall. When everybody gets on the dragon, flies off with Daenerys, that they kind of did this this bit of complicated maneuver where it seems like he's going to die, and then Uncle Benjen comes in, and then he goes back on a horse instead of getting on the dragon. I think they want to have Jon Snow get on a dragon. They're saving that for the final season. I think so, and I'm very excited for that. Have you noticed, James? This was like one of me and my fiance's favorite parts of the season. Whenever Danny is getting on or off of uh, one of her dragons, usually Drogon, there's always just a slight elision of time where you don't see the moment when she has to kind of hang down off of the side. Like, yes, yes, yes. We always cut right from like her sort of being like astride the dragon, looking like such a badass, to her sort of like sashaying off of it from from out behind the wing. There's that one missing moment that's just like is she just sort of literally like holding off of the edge there <laughs> yeah 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 i i, I remember when uh they, they were shooting it and they, they were showing you know they didn't actually obviously they didn't have a track in there but uh her coming down from the edge of the coliseum and it's this rocky thing and i i just pictured mad i mean it's she better land in the right place so she can find a path down to the dirt. And what if she stumbles and then she like tumbles all the way down, you know, onto the arena floor face first. It'd be a terrible entrance to make. I am struck by the fact that like Danny, we can say she's, she's kind of magisterial. That's kind of her thing. Like I love the idea of John sort of trying to get on a dragon and just being as awkward as you imagine someone actually would be riding a 50 foot beast. So we'll see. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, James. I do think that like, that's something that we're, 
we're building towards. We had a few other emails about the possibility that I think we might have discussed before the notion of Tyrion being a secret Targaryen. This is one thing that I'm going to chalk up to like the, the Lady Stoneheart in thousand page books. It might be okay if two similar things right. happen. I, I'm not sure the show is going to go to that well again, but th- th- this does bring up the question that we've discussed and that has kind of been another thing that I've been confused about. People are really focusing on that Tyrion shot from the finale, like really focusing on it. Do you think there's like anything there? And on a larger level, what do you think Tyrion is sort of walking towards in season eight? I mean, he's a character who has symbolized a lot of the show's interests and a lot of its intrigues and a lot of its hopes for redemption and lack of redemption. I guess, what do you think is going to happen? And like, what do you hope for him in the end? I hope that he uh, ends up as the hand to whoever ends up on, on that throne and gets to put his his good heart and his big brain to use, you know, managing Westeros. And, and I don't think that that's necessarily an unlikely outcome either. Um, you know, if I think if either John or Danny or, you know, there's probably potential a couple other characters too, if they end up on the iron throne that, that, that they would want him in, in that role. So, so yeah, that's my hope there. No, I don't think he's a secret tar- Targaryen. I think that, uh, I don't think the show would want to do two main characters as secret Targaryens. It's just one of those, you know, and to me, it's one of those reasons why, and the showrunners have never commented uh, on the record about uh, why they haven't done Lady Stoneheart. But one thing that occurred to me later, you know, long after uh, season three, when you would have expected to, to see that is once they resurrected Jon Snow, I thought, Oh, I bet you anything that was one reason why they yep. didn't do Lady yep. Stoneheart because you know they didn't want to you know basically I know Lady Stoneheart is different than Jon Snow and in terms of the way he came back but you you don't want to resurrect a, a main character back from the dead you know, in that dramatic of a fashion twice. It's time now for my favorite part of the show, the trivia segment. Uh, in our last episode, I had asked you to list all of the people remaining in Westeros now, people who are in charge of their house and who are directly descended, like their mother and father, came from two different great houses. These were the great houses represented at the start of the show, so not counting any latecomers like the phrase. Uh, the two correct answers were, of course, Sansa Stark, who is the daughter of a Tully and a Stark, and good old Robin Aaron, who is the fruit of the wedding between another Tully and an Aaron. Uh, kudos to everyone who got that right. Um, this week's trivia, we got some great prizes for you. There's an Aegon Targaryen t-shirt. There's a Crown Accepts Your Truce t-shirt. There's a I Did Warn You Not to Trust Me hoodie. Uh, R.I.P. Littlefinger Forever. A lot of great prizes. If you have the correct answer to the question I'm about to ask, send it to gotpodcast at ew.com. We'll select a correct answer at random and a lucky winner will get to win one of those great prizes. This week's trivia question, guys, we now know beyond all shadow of a doubt that Jon Snow is indeed a Targaryen. He is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. Here's a fun fact. 
that means that if you go back over the course of the show, Jon Snow met the man who killed his biological father. That, of course, was Robert Baratheon, the best friend of his adopted father. But when you realize that Jon's a Targaryen, you realize that we've met some other members of his family over the course of the season. So our final trivia question of the season. Who are... Jon Snow's family members, either blood relatives or legal relatives, legal according to uh, perhaps certain countries have rules uh, by which families become bonded. Marriage, potentially, is what we're talking about. Who are Jon's family members who have died over the course of this show? These are characters we've seen. We're looking for characters who had speaking roles. List the characters who are related to Jon Snow by blood or legality, and list next to the characters, how were they related to Jon? You got that? I think I got that. We'll see. Send your answers to gotpodcast.com. We'll select one lucky winner at random out of the correct answers. And I I think that's it. I, I, I think that's I think that's about where we're at here going into this. People keep asking about the final season when we're going to get it. Uh, supposedly uh, six episodes of uncertain length. I'm sure at least one or two will be supersized given what we've seen these last two seasons. In terms of dates, there is no official date for when it comes back. Uh, the date that I have heard a couple times is uh, 2019. But until HBO announces that and makes it official, uh, it's all kind of up in the air. Um, at the, it, It's sort of like at minimum, uh, second half of 2018. That, that, would, that would be the earliest I would expect to see it. Even though it's only six episodes, uh, I suspect the production will take just as long to make them, if not even longer than they have previous seasons because they're they're very obsessed with, with trying to make every season even bigger and better than the ones before it. And I don't expect that to stop with the final season, which uh, the producers very much want to nail and make into something really satisfying and great. So... I think for you know for the time being that's going to be it for uh, EW's Game of Thrones weekly podcast. Uh, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to us talk and debate and laugh, you know, and, and obnoxiously uh, throughout these these past episodes. Um, if 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 you missed one, and you know, feel free to go back and check them out. Um, and you know, I'm sure. We'll hopefully, fingers crossed, be back for the final season and maybe even before that for the previous seasons. Uh, we're, we're still figuring that out. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Darren? Just going to say, uh, if anybody out there has any thoughts they still want to share us, with us or if they're intrigued by the idea of us circling back around to the previous seasons, you got to give us a tweet. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. You can also email us. Our email address is gotpodcast at ew.com. Uh, as always, it's been a true pleasure to be the Joe Jen Reed to James's Three-Eyed Raven. And uh, we'll be back somewhere between Westworld Season 2 and the Deadwood movie uh, to cover the final season of Game of Thrones here on EW's Game of Thrones Weekly.
Guys, we're talking so much about the Game of Thrones TV series. If you have not read the books that the show is based on, I would highly recommend them. They're some of my favorite books. And if you want to read them and get a full, wild, panoramic experience, iBooks has an exclusive version of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books called the Enhanced Editions that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. More useful than ever now that we know that the family trees are oh so tangled. It's so great when you can click on someone's name and see who they're related to, how they're related to them. The Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. It is a great way to experience the world of Game of Thrones, whether you are a diehard TV fan, whether you've already read the books, whether you just want to know exactly how John and Danny are related. So weird, so cool. Dig into the family tree, Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions. 